We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. I'd like you to look at Proverbs chapter 13 with me. You know, to say a word in preface to this, I had never taught the, the book. Did I say Proverbs? Okay. I thought I had Song of Solomon on my mind. I thought I might have said something wrong. Um, I had never, ever really taught the book of Proverbs. And I, it may have been because of the feeling you can't really teach Proverbs unless you're a grandfather, you know. You got to be old. You got to have six grandkids to where you, because often the, the text that will say, my son, my son, it's an old man's book to a young man. Have you ever wanted to sit down with your grandkids and just say, y'all just all sit here and listen, and I'm going to talk to you as you rise up before the gray-headed, because we've learned some things through pain that we've been through. And so this is unlike any other book. It's not Romans or Revelation or John that are great theological treatises. Uh, this is a book that doesn't demand a lot of uh, knowledge of the Hebrew, knowledge of the whatever, knowledge of the context of the times. It's just right there. This is bad, and this is good, and this is where it leads you. Uh, one guy has said of Proverbs that it is the book that is in the cracks of the law, that the law will give Ten Commandments and another couple of hundred commandments, but it's Proverbs that falls in the cracks that says, this is what it means to love your neighbor and forgive your neighbor. This is what it means to do that. And so it, uh, it kind of gives a, uh, a floral arrangement to all of the hard facts of law. This is what it looks like. And so with that in mind, in verse uh, 10, it says, through insolence comes nothing but strife. But wisdom is with those who receive counsel. Y'all know who John Madden is? Coach for the Oakland Raiders. Uh, he once said to his team, he said, we've got two rules here at the Raiders. He said, you play hard. We're paying you money to win and you play hard and you practice hard. And number two, you don't be late for meetings. Sounds kind of funny to say that in keeping with playing hard. He said, we move as a team. When one guy is late, it throws the whole team off. And he said, habitual lateness is a disrespect of the team. And so he's looking at insolence. It's not merely a breaking of rules. It's a disregard of the team. So insolence is not allowed. Tom Landry would go a step further. If you were late, you got a $50 fine. We're going to start that here at Denton Bible. Here, here. We're going to, but if you're late, it's a $50 fine, and then it doubles. It's $100. It's $200 as you are late. Uh, Bill Belichick, y'all familiar with him? New England Patriots. Uh, if you are late, he simply closed the door and said, leave. You just don't come in. Let's begin. Close the doors. Click. Door opens. Leave. I'm Tom Brady. Leave. You're not allowed because we have to do things on time and not being on time is insolence. What insolence is, is that it's, uh, it's the disrespect 
not simply of the rules, but it's a disrespect of the authority. If you ever on a team have a player that is insolent, it's when they're not going to run wind sprints and they're not going to show up at practice when they have to. They hold the leadership in contempt. And when that happens, all the rest of the team looks at that coach. What will you do? And if he backs off on that player, he's lost the team. They're gone. Uh, if you have an employee that instead of taking an hour for lunch, takes an hour and 15 minutes because he's such and such an employee, everybody watches you because he's holding the company in contempt. If you let that slide, you bring strife. Uh, a student that mouths off in class and is disrespectful of the teacher, that is insolence. And all the class wonders, what will you do with that person? right here. A child. You ever have that? When a child tries to commandeer the home, not just by keeping the rules, but by smarting off to the parent. I remember I did that once. I was in the second grade. I can remember up until that point. <laughs> Afterwards, it's fuzzy, but I, I I had new memories in the third grade. I remember <laughs> after a year, they came back to me. You didn't, you didn't pop off to my mother. All right. And so insolence brings strife because insolence brings disunity and it brings mutiny to a group. Can you have it in a church? Yes, you can. Of somebody that I know y'all believe this. I'm going to believe this and I'm going to teach this. And I will, like Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I will raise up and make disciples after myself and lead them astray. And so what will the church do? Particularly if it's a rich guy in the church, if it's some guy like, you know, Kendall or Debbie Haven, you know, what are you going to do when they're going to commandeer it just because they're loaded? All right. Everybody watches you. And so insolence makes the coach, the employer, the pastor, the teacher, the parent, as soon as it happens, they go on guard because if they don't respond, then they have lost, uh, they've lost the team. The Bible says by forbearance is a ruler persuaded and a soft word breaks the bone. There is a way that you approach a leader. When somebody comes to an elders meeting uh, that not in this service, the early service has a lot of problems with this. All right. But when somebody comes to an elders meeting and goes, Hey, uh, I got a bone to pick with you. Well, you just lost that. No matter what you say, if you say that's the sun out there uh, or the moon, that's not the sun. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you on anything that you say, because I can't, you can't give up the church to one guy. And so there is a way to approach leadership. Uh, the teachable in verse 10, with wisdom, it's those who receive counsel that are not insolent. They're teachable. You know why they're, they're teachable? Because they're wise. And the reason they're wise is not what they know, but they know what they don't know. If you want to teach somebody and make them great, you have to find somebody that knows that they don't know. So, David wrote in the Psalms, he said, God, I am like a sojourner before you in the land. Have you ever been to a foreign country where you didn't know anything? 
you were helpless and you had to have some help. David said in the Psalms, that's the way I am in life. I'm a sojourner. I don't know how to do anything. Uh, Solomon at the beginning of his monarchy said, I am like a child. I do not know my right from my left. He was 20 years old. He was a college sophomore. All right. And he said, I don't know my right from my left. Uh, intelligent people know that they don't know. And that is why they are teachable. Now, I'll tell you my observation here. I think after 72 years of watching humans out there, that some people are unique on the track because they run longer, they run faster, and they run harder. And so they stand out as excellent. You know what the word excellent means? Ex colis means a hill jutting out. It's higher than the surroundings. And so they're excellent because they work longer, harder, and faster than ever. They have a higher standard. And so they run by themselves. And you can see just because they're faster. There's other people that want to be recognized, but they don't want to run longer, faster, and, and harder. So what they do is they run, run the wrong way on the track. And that way you have to notice them because they run all by themselves because they're running the wrong way. And I have noticed that there are people that throughout life, they really don't want the effort of excellence, but what they will do is they'll be a rogue and they will run an opposite direction to get everybody to pay attention to them. Are y'all with me? If you're like this, just stand up, okay? <laughs> because there are people that get into this habit and I really feel in watching them for years, there are some people that if they start cooperating with everybody else, they get a sense that they have lost their identity. And so what they have to do is they have to run the wrong way on the track. That was much of the 60s. You just run the wrong way. And when you do that, you have to make now your wrong way a good thing and the right way a bad thing. And that's when you are a psychotic. Let's move to the next verse right here. In verse 15, so as you go through life, you want to be teachable. And thus in verse 15, uh, no, verse 11, like I say, wealth obtained. We're going to now take teach teachability and take it into the workplace. Wealth obtained by fraud, or the Hebrew says, by vanity dwindles. Sometimes the word vanity means no such thing in Hebrew. Wealth obtained by not working. Wealth obtained by vanity. What would that be? You make work pushing drugs. You make work as a pimp. You make work uh, as a thief, as a con man. You make work as a burglar. Wealth obtained by vanity, not hard work, dwindles because easy money always, once you make it by your thievery, you now you spend it and then you don't have any money. And so it, once you steal, your money starts going down. That was the problem with being Bonnie and Clyde. Make a note whenever you think of being a bank robber, okay? 
You have to go between Arkansas, New Mexico, Louisiana, uh, Oklahoma, and Texas with your money, and you can't ever stop because they're always looking for you. And so your money starts dwindling as you live in KOAs and out of the back of your car. And then what do you have to do in a couple of weeks? You got to rob again. Then you got to rob again because you can never stop. And ultimately you do like Bonnie Parker and you write out your, your obituary. All right. Remember the poem she wrote? Uh, this is the ballad of Bonnie and Clyde. She wrote her death knell. Or you can be like uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. You can go to Bolivia down there, and then you get shot by an entire army. And so that's the problem with crime, is that you don't learn how to work. But in verse 11, but one who literally gathers on the hand, he sows with his hand, he waters with his hand, he cuts with his hand, he gathers and binds with his hand. He threshes with his hand. The guy that works hard keeps reinvesting it, keeps improving, buying new land, buying new techniques, buying new oxen, and he gets better and better and better. It's called a work ethic. And so uh, the one who gathers on the hand, he increases it. How many times have you heard this? That my, my grandfather started with a small engine repair in his garage and developed that he was really good and people would bring it to him. And then he had to go buy a shop and people would come. And then he ran the shop and he got a couple of guys that he taught it how to do it. And then pretty soon they grew it and we went to another shop and then he sold it for this, and now my grandparents live in Highland Park. All right. How many of you have ever heard that story of people that start and work hard, and God just blesses them? I bet you your daddy was the same way. The Debbie Haverin's daddy was one of the best home builders in the entire area. Did he start kind of small? He did because he had all them kids eating his food down there. There were 13 of you, as I remember, yeah, seven of you. He starts small, then pretty soon, if you want it done right, I believe Billy Graham came to him to have a house built, his daughter, because she wanted it built right. You went to Revo Stewart. And so that's, that's an old story of guys starting small and just working so hard and so excellently that everybody came to him. Well, that's called a work ethic. Here's a good verse for you. You ready? A fool's eyes are on the ends of the earth, but to the right, to the wise man, wisdom is always at hand. Your daddy wasn't always looking off to do some waiting for his boat to come in through some crazy idea. Now, Fools are always looking for easy money to the ends of the earth. They're waiting for that something, that big strike to come in. But a wise man, wisdom is always at hand. He's working where he is. He's blooming where he's planted. How many of you have had friends that always live in squalor 
but they're always waiting to make a billion dollars doing something or other. And so work. Be kind of like being a carpenter, like being a shepherd. You just do well. See a man skilled in his work, he'll not stand before obscure men. He will stand before kings. Back in the Protestant Reformation, they persecuted a lot of the Anabaptists, but there was one group they wouldn't persecute. They were called the Hutterites. You know why they didn't? Because they were hat makers, and they made the best hats in Europe. And so, don't kill that Hutterite. We need his hats. They were, they were spared. How many of you have ever heard of shakers? Heard of shakers? A shaker is a group that came out of Germany that uh, the female leader, no, I'm sorry, it was out of England. The female leader of the group felt she was the female representation of God. All right? Uh, and um, they, at their meetings, would walk in circles and they would wait for the spirit to touch them and they would speak out in prophecy. They were also celibate and they didn't believe in marriage or in sex. So it's, you don't need a real Sunday school program right for that because they didn't have any kids. And that group began to dwindle, but they, they still have a reputation because they believed in their doctrine that worship was work. And so when you think of shakers, what do you think of shaker furniture? They made furniture that would last forever. Thomas Jefferson said, shakers would rule the world if they just weren't crazy. <laughs> True quote. Yeah, they dwindled away. It's what happens with no Sunday school. Okay. And so a bum, a crook, wants money, but he don't want to work. Uh, the hardworking guy, he's going to build on it continually. That's why in our church, Calvin Clark, that worked a lot with the inner city, Calvin told me it was tough sometime in the inner city because the young boys would see the guys scoring the big score were the druggies and the guys that pushed it and guys that would fence stolen goods. And then they would see the guy grinding it out eight to five and that hidden one they wanted to follow. They would go after the bling over here. And so learn to honor the right guy. Hard work. And then um, in verse, let's see, 12, this closely follows a hard work ethic is the unexpected. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Literally, the Hebrew says, hope that drags. When you've got your heart set on something and it doesn't work, you've, got, you've been aiming for something and the point you were going to dissipates. We get a word for that. It's called disappointment. I did this, I expected that, and my heart is sick. Can that ever happen to hardworking people? Yeah, that's life. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, desire fulfilled or desire literally that is coming is a tree of life. It's divine life. 
Whenever you dream something and then you plan something and then you initiate something and you persevere and stay with it and you get it done, that is like the Garden of Eden. It's divine life. It's not money that comes from a quick score. It's not money that just comes from the lottery. It means that you worked, you earned it, and you succeeded. And there is no greater joy than succeeding. You know, in our family, the Nelson family, none of us had ever been to college. Mama said, if you're going to get to college, you're going to have to get somebody to give you a, a way to get there. And so two of us went music. Two of us went sports. We all got scholarships. We all went to college. I was moving between music and astrophysics. I didn't know which I was going to do. And so I went ahead and played football, all right? And I, I had a good arm, and I had good feet, but I wasn't that good. And so I worked. I've never met any kid that worked harder than what he did, because I knew that was my desire, is I wanted to get a scholarship. And so I would throw, I would go out and have a net, and I would draw a circle on it, and I would put it where a 12-yard curl was, and I'd drop back and throw that curl and hit that net, and I'd have like seven balls, and I would throw them to hit that. Then I'd move over and hit a curl right here. Then I'd move over here, and I'd put it with an out pattern over here. Then I'd move it over and throw it over here. And so I would throw until finally it, it kind of resolved, but my thumb would pop because it, it came out of joint. Because when you throw a football, write this down, okay, it comes off that finger. That finger goes out and your thumb goes down. That's the way you roll the ball like that, all right? And so I would throw so much that eventually the thing just popped out of place. But I worked and I worked until finally I was a Division I college athlete. I had to choose between North Texas and Cisco Junior College, okay? Yeah, I don't want North Texas, all right? But I got my scholarship. And I graduated. When I graduated, let me tell you another story. You know how you have your your uh, rehearsal for graduation. You all learn your seats. You're going to sit here. When you walk in, you sit right there. There's your seat. Well, I went and checked my seat, and my name wasn't there. And I said, hey, I graduated. I don't have a seat. And the guy looked at it. His name was Bob Huffaker. He was my English prof. He was the guy that when Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald. He was the Channel 4 reporter. So, so whenever you watch that played, he's been shot. He's been shot. That was my professor. Okay. And so I said, Bob, I don't have a seat. And he said, huh, let's go talk to Estelle Stevens, the president's secretary. And so we scurried over there. And I said, I don't have a seat. And I know I did the work. And she said, ah, oh, yes. I remember Bob Huffaker said to her, this is my student, Tom Nelson. He is up the proverbial creek without the legendary paddle. I'll never forget that. <laughs> and she looked at it and said, ah, your final professor didn't get a grade in. I said, what class was that? It was microbiology. I said, I know I made a D in that. And so we had to, we had to find him, okay? And we found Dr. Vela. Dr. Roland Vela, down in Mission, Texas. And I was there listening to her. Dr. Vela, <laughs> see, it's not a big. 
Did Tom Nelson graduate your class? Did he make a, a grade? Tomas, see? He, he's a Hispanic guy, okay. Tomas, see, uh, is they made a, a D? Made a D. A B? No, B. No. D. A D. Yeah. And I said, see, I told you. Okay. The problem was, whenever you don't make the, the uh, rehearsal, you can't just go to the, the graduation and tell everybody to move down one. Okay. Guess where they put me? Last. Okay. <laughs> I was a baby Christian at the time. It's like God was saying, get used to this. All right. And so they had the graduation of the, edu- of the class of education, of which I was. And it was like, Zupki, yeah. Zimmerman, yeah. Zizmanski, yeah. Tom Nelson. Yeah, everybody just applauded because they just said, this poor, probably some kid off the street. They just gave him a degree. Isn't this great? And whenever you see a guy graduate, what do you always hear? Hallelujah. Glory to God. Olympic. When they start playing, you know, the Star Spangled Banner, the guy starts crying. Uh, shot at the buzzer where you win. They, they cry. Just hope that deferred makes the heart sick, but desire realized is the is the fountain of life. And so when I got that scholarship, I had worked for it. When I got that D, I worked for it. And that's the way it feels when you, when you work for something and get it as opposed to cooking meth. You work and get it. Amen. When I was at seminary, Dr. Howard Hendricks looked at us one time, best educator there is. He said, how many of you guys have ever had something in life that you could not have? And you had to do everything you could to get it. It was a men's gathering. Men raised their hands. He said, how many of you were shaped by wanting what you could not have? And you had to dig deep. Every hand goes up. And then Howie says, how many of you are making sure your kid never has to struggle? He said, you're made by wanting what you can't have. Desire realized is like the blessing of God. God works six days and it's finished. Adam, subdue, cultivate, gain dominion and rule. That's what we're going to do. And so work is a pre-fall thing. You learn to labor by the sweat of your brow uh, and to attain something you don't have. God said, whenever Israel goes into the promised land, you're going to get cities you didn't build. You're going to have wells you didn't dig. You're going to have orchards you didn't plant. Be careful that you don't think you did this because you didn't. You're going to have to struggle. Well, you ever prayed this prayer? Two things I have asked of thee, O God, do not withhold them. Give me neither wealth nor poverty. Y'all ever prayed, God, take this money away from me? Give me neither wealth, lest my heart be lifted up. And I say, who is the Lord? Give me neither poverty, lest I must steal and defame the name of my God. God, just let me be in the middle, okay? 
Laodicea, you've become lukewarm because you say, I have need of nothing. And so, desire realized to work for something is a tree of life. In verse 13, um, the one who despises the word will be in debt to it. What's that mean? Despise the word, it means you blow it off, you don't listen to it. And so instead of obeying it, now you're in debt. Do y'all happen to be in debt for certain things? I am too. When you're in debt, do you have to pay? Debbie, yes, you do. Whether you like it or not, you will pay. You neglect the word and you will be in debt to it. Now you will have to pay. You could have followed the word and been blessed. You didn't, and now you're in jail. You didn't, and now you have children of the corn. Okay. Now marriage number four just walked off on you. And now you have hit the bottom. What are you going to do now? I think I'll obey God. He that neglects the word, we're going to extort it. Prodigal son, you didn't want to work. You wanted to go to the hookers. Now you're envying pigs. What are you going to do now? He came to his senses. I'll go home and say to my father, Father, I've sinned. Can I be a hired servant? Now he did all right. And so it's kind of like that Andy Granatelli commercial. Remember that? You can pay me now or you can pay me later, but you are going to obey. You'll either want to or you'll have to do so to survive, but you'll have to. Uh, I'm depressed. Let's keep looking right here. So the one who despises the word will be in debt to it. But the one who fears the commandment, he doesn't have to go through that living hell as much. Hard times can hit the best of men, but you don't have to bring stuff on yourself that you're bringing on. Um, what are you struggling with? My drinking problem. What else? I'm broke because of your drinking problem. What else? My wife doesn't respect me because you're broke because of the drinking problem. You hit yourself with a mallet continually. Does it hurt when you do that? Yes, it does. Let's don't do that. Man, you're a great counselor. Yeah. He that neglects the word is going to have to obey to survive. He that honors it, it's going to come back with a reward. Let me show you something. Look at Psalm. Go to your left to Psalm 32. And Psalm 32, this is one of David's penitential psalms. It occurred right there with Psalm 51 and the Bathsheba foul up on David's life. And it says in Psalm 32, verse 1, how blessed is he that transgression is forgiven and whose sin has been covered. It's wonderful, not just to be sinless, but to be somebody that has confessed your sin and you dealt with it when you should. And in verse 2, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. When God does not look at you and say, nobody knows it but me, but you're guilty, David, you got Bathsheba pregnant, you killed her husband, and you tried to dodge the bullet, and you got away with it. 
but the thing was not pleasing in the sight of God. I know what you did. You ever had a time where you couldn't sleep at night because you and God knew something? That's the worst experience of your life. To be on a collision course with a sovereign God is a dangerous place to be. And so he says, blessed is the man whose spirit there is no deceit. A guy that's not perfect, but he's perfectly honest. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. To be blessed with God, you don't have to be perfect. You have to be perfectly honest. All right? And so in verse 3, we got the pronoun I. David said, look at my life. When I kept silent about my sin, which he did for nine months, my body wasted away through my groaning all the day long. He said, I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. He said in verse 4, God just beat me like a borrowed mule. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. You ever felt that? To where God was just disciplining you for what you knew you had done. David said, my vitality, or literally, my life's juices were drained away as with the fever heat of summer. You ever seen a frog crushed in August on a highway? That's how he said, I felt. I was a carcass. And so what I did was verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I didn't hide. I said, I'll confess. The Greek word confess means homo legeos. It means we speak the same. I'm not going to dodge anymore. I did it. I did it. My father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I did it. Verse 5, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Isn't that great? God is good. Verse 6 he starts talking to you now. He said, listen to me. Let everyone who is godly, here's what godliness is, pray to you, God, in a time when you may be found. Meaning, godliness is you confess as soon as you mess up. You stop right there. And you say, Lord, my bad. Because if you don't, at the end of verse 6, something's coming for you. You see it? Surely in a flood of great waters, they, the waters, will not reach him. So when I get off track and rebel against God, I can either confess then and repent, or I can listen and I'll hear something coming. It's called white water. Question, how much does a flood take away? Everything. David said, don't try God. When you sinned, pray in a time you may be found. Some feel that the Hebrew should read this. Pray in a time of finding. As soon as you find out, pray. Don't do like David did and hide it. You remember a guy named Achan stole stuff? hid it under his bed, and God said, there's gold in your tent, and I know who it is. I know who did it, and he was stoned. Verse 7, 
You're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I don't want to experience the total cataclysm of what can happen when you continue in sin. How many of you have friends or loved ones that their life got completely Hiroshima'd by sin, just taken away? David said, don't do it. And so the one that despises the word is going to scramble to try to get his nose above water. The one who fears the commandment, though, will be rewarded. In verse 14, here's the way you do it. You get under the teaching of the wise. You get where you have input. There's an old saying among the navigators, when your output exceeds your intake, your upkeep becomes your downfall. You get yourself under the teaching of the wise. You learn your Bible. You get to church. You get in a Bible study. You start reading the great works. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. Y'all, anybody here remember Jerry Streeter? Dear old buddy from me, he passed away a few years back. I went and visited him. Wonderful fellow, worked with the navigators for, I forget how many years. And I went and visited him just before he died. And I prayed with him. He had cancer. He was there in his home. And as I left, he called out to me. It was the last thing he ever said to me. He said, with that voice of his, it would cut through steel. All right. He said, stay close to the spout where the glory comes out. <laughs> That's what that verse means. You stay close to the, where, the fountain. A fountain is continually flowing because what it will do, it'll turn you aside from the snares. What's a snare? It's something that is purposed by an intelligence beyond you to catch you and kill you. Are there snares in life? Question. Who sets them? Satan does. Deliver me from temptation Deliver me from evil. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me into green pastures and he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. He prepares a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. And so learn your Bible as a prevention. Learn the way. These things were written for our experience that we might not do the same things as they did. 1 Corinthians says, my favorite time, I love the early morning, it's me and my Bible. Every year, I will read and take notes on a Bible. I love the Zondervan Study Bible because it's got great notes filling in the gaps. And then when I finish, I will give it away to a grandchild or a nephew. And then I get a brand new one. And me and God work through it. Studying your Bible is like taking a whisk broom and working on an archaeological dig. You just go away an eighth of an inch at a time. And as you keep going, you discover a new world that you've never seen. And that's the way you study your, study your Bible. You don't take a backhoe in there. You just take an a eyebrow, all you women use, and you just kind of cosmetic deal. You just move it away, and you go just a sixteenth of an inch, eighth of an inch, and you do it continually, and you learn and see a world 
you've never seen before. And so I love to get up in the morning, later on in the afternoon, I'll work on some stuff there for a text. And then in the evening, it's me, Teresa, our dog, the Bible, and Matt Dillon. Okay. We watch Gunsmoke and read the Bible. I have never, ever recovered from the Bible. I'll just tell you. The idea that I can go to in the beginning, all the way through coming up to Christ. Christ, the age of grace, the tribulation, the second coming, the kingdom, final judgment, eternity, and I can put it in one hand. I can put it in one hand. I have never recovered from the Bible. Uh, my buddy back there in the back, Ray Meckle. You back there, Ray Meckle? Okay. Ray, a couple of years older than me, turned 75 a little while ago. And Ray grew up atheist. He got converted and found his Bible. And it's just marvelous. We meet and visit and we talk and we pray. And uh, Ray discovers as an older man diamonds that have been laying there. And uh, I told him one day we'd been reading and I said, read Psalm 22 and tell me what you think, which is the chief messianic song. And he calls me a few hours later. That's Jesus. I said, yeah, from 1500 BC. That is, no, 1000 BC. That's Jesus. Try Isaiah 53. Wow. Have you read this? Yes. As a matter of fact, I have. That's Jesus. Yes, it is. And so Ray will read his Bible at night and he'll lay it there waiting for him in the morning. Don't you move. Okay. He'll set his coffee timer, go to bed. He's up at five and he starts back just reading his Bible. That's the way it ought to be. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. Newborn babes never get to outgrow being newborn babes. That's the way we're always supposed to be. We're hungry for it. And so the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life and it's meant to keep you from having to pay the tuition on stupidity. You dig? It'll keep you from the snares of death. You can learn about purity without having to get on the dark side of waking up in a hotel hung over, tattooed, married, and broke, all right, to a woman you've never seen. It's better to learn the Bible and to follow the way of God. Amen? Make life easy. Because in verse 15, what does reading your Bible give you? Good and understanding produces favor. But the way of the treacherous it's hard. It's painful to learn that way. When I was at North Texas, we had a coach make us run after practice, and he said, this is called the pleasure-pain principle. It's going to be so painful to do wrong, it will be a pleasure to do right. And that's kind of the way God does it sometimes, is the pleasure-pain principle. It will be a delight. So somebody can say to you, What's it like to go through? Now, a lot of you grew up maybe with homes that uh, were full of discord. Ever read that verse that says, better is a plate of vegetables 
and a house of peace than a fattened ox and a house of strife. A lot of you grew up in a house of strife. And a lot of you, you're not real sure what that means because you grew up with parents that loved each other and a father that was a leader and a mother that was respectful and children that were beaten often, okay? And so you didn't have rogue stuff taking place. You didn't worry about your dishonest father getting thrown away because he was honest. Uh, you sat at family gatherings and there was joy because there was order in the family. Uh, you didn't worry about your father coming in drunk because he was sober in spirit. Amen. That's the way it's supposed to be. And so the way of the transgressor, it's hard to say, don't do like I did. The way of understanding produces favor. All of this has an assumption that there is final truth. Are you with me? All of this has an assumption that there is final truth, that God has spoken and God has revealed himself and God has made it knowable in a codex, in a book. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. And so it says that God has revealed himself. And when you look at history, History is the constant butting up against that notion of man turning away from the Bible and trying to figure it out himself. This is where the universe came from. This is what man is. This is what mind is. This is what will is. This is what morality and a conscience is. This is what sexuality is. This is what marriage is. This is what government should be and doing it without God. And that is the mess that is called human history. But through it all, there is this river of life of those that submit to and yield to the Word of God. Uh, I had a great thought once upon a time. Oh, yeah. When anybody comes to me and they say, what do you think about abortion? What do you think about homosexuality? What do you think about defunding? Please, what do you think about letting anybody in without any qualification your country? What do you think about no-fault divorce, just packing it up on your mate? What do you think about this or that? What do you think about religion? What do you think about sexuality? I always stop them because I'm kind of the resident fundamentalist someplace. And they'll ask me this, and I say to them, I'm going to answer you, but before I do, I want you to understand something. I'm a Christian. The root word of that is Christ. And what that means is that there is a person that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took to himself humanity and became the Messiah, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that he did it to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. He did it as recorded in the Gospels, and you see the message go out in the book of Acts, explained in the epistles, and he's coming back in Revelation. And I believe God has told me, so I don't have to figure it out myself, I that made a D in microbiology, okay, 
I'm telling you that I can know the essential answers on where the universe came from, what is man, what is evil, what is redemption, what is history, and what is right and wrong. I can know the establishment of the great uh, institutions of marriage, child rearing, government, church, work, commerce, that I know what my requirement is. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And so that is my assumption, is that I don't have to go into myself to come up with answers that you can't find outside of God. All we're going to do is argue like history has done. I believe God has made himself known, okay? So when you asked me that question, I can't look in a test tube and give you an answer, but I can give you an answer very dogmatically on the basis of God who has revealed himself. Are you with me? Okay. Because this is what I think, according to what God has said, that there is a creator and man in the image of God and a child in the womb in the image of God. And that there is a way that kings rule. And there is a way of sexuality and a way of morality and a way of gender and a way of the home. Now, I don't argue with beings who speak into reality the entire universe. I go with what they say. And so that's what I believe because that's my assumption that God has spoken. Amen? And that is your assumption. And that way, we don't have to be a bunch of self-reflected geniuses because there ain't none. I found the truth. Really, who are you? I made a D in microbiology. Really? And you're going to tell me what the truth is? How do I know? And how do you know it is true? It's circular reasoning. God must speak. How do I know that he has spoken? The chief focus of the book has raised from the dead. That's the way you know it. And so all of this on Proverbs assumes that there is final truth. And our belief system is what the rest of the world is looking for. They just won't assent to. Amen. So don't move. Don't exchange your Mercedes for a skateboard because that is what we have. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us truth. As Jesus said, thy word is truth. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And without the Bible, the world is just a blind man looking for a Bible. Without a Savior, the world is a blind man looking into the tombs for someone who has conquered it. Uh, without the Bible, man is just a blood-stained human of war looking for somewhere where there is peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Strengthen us in our day, for we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.